So for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at different individuals who make up the nativity story, as we often call it. Uh, I've entitled this series, The Cast of Christmas. Um, I'll be honest with you, I hesitated a moment to call this Christmas series The Cast of Christmas. And the reason why is because I do not in any way want to um, give you the wrong idea about the historicity of the individuals that we're going to be talking about. You see, these are not characters in a Christmas play. These are real life historical figures, not performing a role, but rather living their lives. And so my goal for these next several weeks is to help you see not only the impact of each person or group of people, that they, the impact that they had on the big scheme of things, uh, but also to help us to look at things from their point of view. Help us to kind of see what they were going through as they walked through uh, the, the events that we now refer to as the nativity story. You know, God chose some very ordinary people to do some very extraordinary things. But that doesn't mean that their lives were just, you know, all fun and easy. And we see that throughout the scripture. Let's take, for example, uh, the person of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord told Abram at that time, his name was changed to Abraham later, but he told Abram to leave his family and friends and to go to another country. He didn't tell him what country he was going to. He said, just, just go and I will take you to a land. I'll show you as you go along the way. And God said that he would make him into a great nation. Now, Abram obeyed God and he left on this journey to find this land that was promised to him. The place that God would make his family into a great nation. But years and years passed. And Abram and Sarai, who became Abraham and Sarah, were barren. They had no children. Now how can your family become a great nation if you're unable to even have one child? Abraham believed God. He trusted that God was telling him the truth. Now, most of you know the story. Uh, Abraham and Sarah conceived a child when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Um, you know, every time Joanna comes to me and says, hey, guess what? Uh, I always joke with her and say, oh, are you pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> she said, bite your tongue. Um, can you imagine? I mean, we're, we're right at that 50 mark. Can you imagine having a child at 190 years old? I can't imagine it. I, I can't imagine what, what that must have been like. But that's what happened. They con conceived a child. And when the child, Isaac, became a young man, God asked 
Abraham to do something that just made absolutely no common sense whatsoever. He had been waiting all this time for God to make his family into a great nation. And then God tells him to go up onto Mount Moriah and offer his son as a sacrifice to him. Made no sense. But you know what? Abraham believed God and he obeyed God up until the point when the angel of the Lord, which if you ever see that phrase in the Old Testament, angel of the Lord, that's referring to the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning that was Jesus before Jesus came and was born of a virgin Mary. The angel of the Lord said, Abraham, stop just before he brought the knife down on to his son. The New Testament explains to us that Abraham believed God so much that he would make him into a great nation that he believed that God would resurrect his child from the dead. He knew that God's promises were true. God said through the angel of the Lord, Jesus, pre-incarnate, now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Genesis 22. So God allowed these events to take place to serve as a picture of what he would one day do by giving his son, his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin and to purchase a place in heaven for us. Abraham and Sarah believed God that he would make them into a great nation. They had Isaac, and then Isaac married a young lady named Rebecca, and God renewed his promise to Isaac to bless and multiply their family, to make their family, as it says, like the stars of heaven, and to bless all nations of the earth through his family. We find that in Genesis 26. Well, Rebekah gave birth to twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Now, there were a lot of things that happened in, in this story, and that's why Genesis is so long. Um, but I, let, jumping ahead and uh, getting to the pertinent details for this morning, um, eventually, Jacob grew up and received a blessing an inheritance from his father Isaac. And then he married and had 12 sons. And God led Jacob and his family to settle in the land referred to as Canaan. Now, I want to take just a moment and uh, allow you to watch a short video. It's a dramatization of Jacob's arrival in the land of Canaan. So watch this from The Chosen Season 1, Episode 8. Right. 
I love the summary that this visitor made of Jacob and his God. He said this, of all the gods you could possibly choose from, you pick an invisible God whose promises take generations to come true, who makes you sojourn in strange places, and he broke your hip? <laughs> he went on and said, that is a strange choice. And did you notice how Jacob responded? He said, we didn't choose him. He chose us. Mm. Before all the world began, before mankind was created, before we ever chose to disobey God in sin, God had a plan to reconcile mankind to himself. And he knew that we would sin. And so he provided a way to be made right in his presence. That way was, is, and always will be Jesus Christ. 
the Messiah. That was God's plan. And there was no plan B. It was always his plan. So throughout recorded history of the Bible, God chose to use people who were willing to yield their lives to him and to pronounce the truth of his word concerning the coming Messiah. The one who would deliver his chosen people once and for all. Now many times the people that God chose to use or that God chose to speak through were called prophets. God's prophets would speak for God to his chosen people. And sometimes their prophecies were corrective or disciplinary in nature. Sometimes those prophecies were divine predictions of things that were to come. Sometimes in the immediate future, but sometimes in the distant future. Some of these prophecies from the Old Testament, we still have not seen the culmination or completion thereof. We're still waiting for some of those. But many of these prophecies were fulfilled in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the man named Jesus. Now, some might ask, how many prophecies are there in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus? Well, scholars differ in their answer, generally ranging from about 200 to as many as 400 plus. Uh, J. Barton Payne, in his Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, gives a list of 191 prophecies that he deems as having a personal reference to Christ. Another scholar, Alfred Edersheim, concluded that there were at least 456 passages in the Old Testament that Jewish rabbis historically have interpreted as being about the Messiah. So how many prophecies did Jesus fulfill from the Old Testament? I can absolutely affirmatively say a bunch. A lot of them. And the good news for you this morning is I'm not going to try to talk about all of them today. All right? Now, as I mentioned earlier, these prophecies about the coming Messiah begin all the way back in the book of Genesis. In fact, the first prophecy of Jesus is immediately after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, in fact. So this morning, we're going to take a few minutes to consider some of these prophecies and, and see the miracle it is that Jesus was the fulfillment of so many prophecies that appear, sometimes appear, to be contradictory. So the first thing we'll look at is the messianic prophecies of Christ's origin. The messianic prophecies of Christ's origin. Um, Several times in the Old Testament, it talks about where the Messiah would come from. So what does it say when it talks about where the Messiah would come from? Well, in Micah chapter 5, we, we find out that he is going to be born in Bethlehem. You see it on the screen, but you, O Bethlehem, uh, 
from you shall come forth for for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. So Bethlehem of Ephrathah was going to be the birthplace of Jesus. But then you look at Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 and the prophecy there says that the son of God would be called out of Egypt. In case you were unaware and you don't know your geography, Bethlehem is not in Egypt. So what does this mean? And then in Matthew 2:23 2.23, the gospel writer says that many prophets predicted that the Messiah would be from Nazareth and he would be called a Nazarene. So the question is, where was Jesus supposed to be from? Was it Bethlehem? Was it Nazareth? Was it Egypt? Which is correct. D, all of the above. You see, the sovereign hand of God brought about the fulfillment of all these things, which is just amazing to think about. If you had been reading these things and not known the story of Jesus, you, you wouldn't have been able to see how this could possibly connect. But when you see the story and when you hear the words of the scripture to explain it, it's beautiful. You see, Mary and Joseph were originally from Nazareth. We find that in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And they returned to Nazareth when Jesus was just a boy, according to Matthew 2, 23. And so Jesus was a Nazarene. But even though his hometown was Nazareth, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why was he born in Bethlehem so far away? Well, if you remember... Because of the registration and taxation that was decreed by Caesar Augustus, Joseph had to return to the town of his lineage. He was a descendant of David, king of Israel. And Bethlehem was known as the city of David. And so when he returned, that was the time in which God saw fit for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. But what about Egypt? Where does Egypt come into all of this? Jesus wasn't from Egypt, was he? Well, according to Matthew 2, verses 13 through 16, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod. They stayed there for a while before returning, as we said earlier in verse 23, back to the town of Nazareth. So I can imagine that asking Jesus where he was from was kind of like asking a missionary kid where they're from. You see, my son, Caleb, uh, if you ask him uh, where he's from, it is one of the most difficult questions you could possibly ask him. He's like, well, I was born in Texas. I grew up in the Philippines and, and now... Um, now I live in Arkansas, so I really don't know where I'm from. You know, my kids have always said that the place that they feel most at home is on a 747. You know, um, even though we hadn't been on one in a while, have we? Uh, even though his, well, 
Yeah, you get the point. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this is actually quite profound if we will apply it to our lives. You see, God always spoke truth to and through his prophets. When it comes to prophecy, there will be teachings that we may not understand or that seemingly do not make sense. But that does not mean that they are untrue. The sovereign hand of God is in control of all things. And we can trust that everything he says he will do. And that everything he promises will work out according to his will. Even when it doesn't make sense. Now as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that he fulfilled in his life. Or his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. More than we could possibly have time for this morning. But I want us to realize that, that these prophets were a big part of this cast of Christmas. But rather than looking at more of those this morning, I want us to look at some cast members in this nativity narrative that experienced prophetic utterances a little more close to the time of Jesus' birth. So let's look, if you would, at Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read here verses 68 through 79. We're going to be looking at the Messianic proclamation of Zechariah. Luke 1, beginning in verse 68, uh, and as always, you can read along with me on the screen or in your own Bible or through the YouVersion Bible app in the interactive study notes. So let's hear what Zechariah, who it says was filled with the Holy Spirit, had to say about the Christ. He said, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now before we jump into this text that we find here, these 12 verses in Luke 1 that we just read, 
I think it's important for us to remember who Zechariah is and what has just happened in his life. Okay? Um, we learn from Luke chapter 1 that Zechariah was a priest. He was also the husband of a woman named Elizabeth. And Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children. And so in Luke 1, verses 8 through 17, an angel appeared to Zechariah while he was serving his rotation in the temple. You see, the, the priest only had to serve a short period of time and they would rotate out uh, month by month. And so he was serving in the, in the temple and he went in and for whatever reason, uh, people didn't understand what was going on at first, but it took Zechariah a long time that day in the temple. And when he came out of the temple, he could not speak. Well, what had happened? Well, you see, an, an angel appeared to him inside the temple and told him that his prayers had been answered. That he and Elizabeth would conceive a baby boy and that baby's boy's name would be John. But Zechariah, being a, an old man, questioned the angel Gabriel about how this could possibly be. And as a result of his unbelief, Zechariah was dumbstruck, literally dumbstruck. He was unable to speak until that promised child was born. Or actually until a little over a week after the child was born. So when he came out of the temple and he was unable to speak, all the people realized that Zechariah had had some sort of vision from the Lord. And so after his time of service ended, he went home and he and his wife conceived a child in their old age. And in Luke 1 verses 57 and following, the scripture recounts the birth of their son. And it says when he was eight days old, they presented the boy in the temple to be circumcised and the other thing that they always did at that point was they would give the child a name. Well, remember, Zechariah still could not speak. So the people, when they, Zechariah and Elizabeth took the, the boy to the temple, all the people there wanted to name him after his father, which was Jewish custom. But Elizabeth spoke up and said, no. We're not naming him Zechariah. We're naming him John. Sorry, I, I just remembered uh, <laughs> my mind, you know. Um, you know, a lot of people like to name their, their sons after them. Have you heard of Ricky Council? <laughs> Ricky Council IV plays for the Arkansas Razorbacks right now. His father is Ricky Council I. His oldest brother is Ricky Council II. His middle brother is Ricky Council III, and he's Ricky Council IV. Um, it's not just Jewish tradition, I guess, is my point. But um, everybody said, no, we can't name him John. Why would we name him John? You've got nobody in your family named John. We need to name him Zechariah. And Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. And so they went to Zechariah and they started to try to communicate with him. And it's kind of funny because it says that they were communicating with signs. 
Now, this could have been, you know, placards or whatever, but I, I really think they were trying to do some sort of hand motions. What is this baby's name going to be, you know? And Zechariah asked for a tablet. And on that tablet, he, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, he was once again able to speak because he had demonstrated his belief in what the angel Gabriel had told him. That, that's an amazing story. But for me, the most amazing part of this story is what he said next. You see, rather than telling everyone about what had happened to him in the temple the previous year, about how the angel's message concerning the son that would be conceived and that they would name him John and, and all of those kind of things. I mean, that, that was the story that I would think he would want to tell about how the angel, because of his unbelief, made him unable to speak for over a year. That wasn't what he said. That wasn't what he talked about. It was in that moment when he had that opportunity to share a story that he prophesied about not his child and all the amazing things that God was going to do through his child, but rather he prophesied about the coming Christ child. So what did he say about the Christ in his prophecy? Well, in verse 68, again, looking at Luke chapter 1, verse 68, he says that he would redeem his people. He would buy them off the uh, slavery block of sin. He would provide for them the opportunity to be made whole with God again. Verse 69, it says that he would uh, be a horn of salvation for us. Now, I got to be honest with you. Uh, I don't, I, I, growing up, I never really knew what a horn of salvation was. It's like, what does this mean? Well, the horn here is referring to the most powerful part of an animal. So in other words, this word picture that we find here, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, means that God has raised up one who has the power to save. Verse 71 goes on and it says, that he would deliver them from their enemies. That the Christ would deliver them. In verses 72 and 73, it, it told us that the Christ was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. That's why we started in Genesis chapter 12 today. The promise of Abraham. That his, his family would become a great nation. But you know, that... If you go through enough years and you keep track, every family has become a great nation, you know? But that wasn't the point. The point was that every nation of the world would be blessed by his family. How? They were blessed through the coming Messiah. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. That was given again to Isaac. That was given again to Jacob. That was given again to David. 
He was the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 75, Zechariah prophesies that, that the Christ would live a perfect life. Verse 76, that the Christ would be the son of the most high God. In verse 77, he said that the Christ would give salvation to all mankind through the forgiveness of sins. Verse 78, he said that the Christ would demonstrate the mercy of God. And in verse 79, he said that the Christ would be the light to a lost and dying world, a world filled with darkness. Jesus would be the light of the world. Folks, there is no greater message that can be communicated than this one that Zechariah proclaimed that day. Too often in our daily conversations, we talk about things that frankly are worthless in light of eternity. Zechariah could have told a pretty intriguing tale of all that he had gone through over that previous year. He could have told a great story. But he chose to tell the better story. Too often, folks, we talk about ourselves ignoring the goodness of God. Too often we talk about our family ignoring our adoption as sons of the Most High God. Too often we talk about our work ignoring our calling as Christ's ambassadors to the world. And too often we talk about our future. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What's going to happen when we retire? We talk about our future, ignoring our eternal destiny with him. What are we proclaiming each and every day about the Messiah? So we started this morning looking at messianic prophecies of Christ's origin. And then we looked at the messianic proclamation of Zechariah. Finally, I want us to look at the messianic promise to Simeon. The messianic promise to Simeon. Let's look at Luke chapter 2 now, verse 21. And let's read just a couple verses here, verse 21 and 22, and then we'll read verses 25 and 26. The Bible says, and at the end of eight days, and just to clarify, Jesus has been born at this point. Happened in the beginning of the chapter, all right? So at the, begin, at the end of, the eight, of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. All right? So just like John was presented at the temple, so was Jesus. On the eighth day, he was taken there, he was circumcised, he was given a name, and that name he was given was Jesus, which means that he would save us from our sins. Verse 22 goes on and says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now look at verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, 
waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What was this messianic promise that was given to Simeon? Well, Simeon, a righteous and devout man, had been told by the Holy Spirit of God that he would not die without seeing the promised Messiah. That is the messianic promise to Simeon. Now in this text, the Bible refers to the Christ as the consolation of Israel, which means that the Messiah would be the one who would be, bring comfort to the nation of Israel. In other words, the redemption of Jerusalem that we find in verse 38. Simeon had been waiting for this. And when this event happened in his life, he took that opportunity to bless the baby Jesus, the Christ child, as well as Mary and Joseph. Now let's look further at verse, what it says in verse 27 through 35. The Bible says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I want us to notice a few things about this blessing that Simeon pronounced upon this baby Jesus, the Christ child. As he's holding that baby... He said, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Wow. Imagine having been given that promise by the Holy Spirit. And then actually seeing that come to fulfillment. As he's holding the Christ child. What an amazing promise that God gave him. And an amazing promise that was fulfilled uh, that day but the, the interesting thing is is in this blessing he didn't just talk about the salvation that he saw for himself but notice it said that this child would be a light of revelation to whom Did you see what it said there to the gentiles to the gentiles Simeon, a Jewish man, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit and this prophecy that he proclaimed that day said that Jesus would not just be the salvation for the Jews, but that he would be salvation for all mankind. Amen? I mean, we should be happy about that because I don't think we have any ethnic Jews in this building. Had it not been for the fact that Jesus wanted to save all mankind, we would not have had even a glimmer of hope. But Jesus was a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And then he went on and said, and glory for your people, Israel. What a, what a tremendous blessing. But notice what he says to Mary and Joseph. He went on and, and, and spoke a blessing. He said to Mary, his mother, behold. Behold, this child is appointed, he said, for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What's, what's he saying here? As he's holding the Christ child, he pronounces this prophecy that this child would be a, for a sign that is opposed. In other words, he would experience great opposition in his life. And then he went on and he said that Mary would be hurt greatly as a result. Her grief would be like a sword piercing her soul. Have you ever been to a baby dedication? Can you imagine a baby dedication service like this one? The preacher holds the baby. Actually, when I do baby dedications, I let the mama hold the baby. But the preacher's holding the baby and he pronounces, this child will have many enemies. And this child will bring you much grief and great pain in your life. Wow. Eli, Hannah, one of these days we might be able to do that for y'all. What do you think? Oh, Hannah said no. Never mind. <laughs> what, what kind of proclamation is this? More than that, can you imagine what Mary actually went through as Jesus grew and began his ministry and, and gained popularity only to lose it and gain many in opposition to him. And then eventually the pain and suffering that he went through at the end of his life. Can you imagine watching your child deal with something like that? He said that Mary would suffer with him. By sympathy. More than any of his other followers. More than any of Jesus' friends. Mary would suffer because of her relation to him. Because of her affection toward him. Simeon said, Sword will pierce through your own soul also. 
When Jesus was abused, it was a sword in her bones. When she stood by the cross and saw him dying, we may well think her inward grief was such that it might truly be said a sword pierced through her soul. It cut her to the heart. I can think of no greater grief than what this must have been for her. And yet, and yet, remember her words that we find in Luke chapter 1. She said, Behold, I, or is it Matthew chapter 1? It's in the Gospels. <laughs> she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a tremendous example she is to us. So I ask you today, what is God asking of your life? What is God asking you to do in your life? Are you willing to yield to his will for your life? Over these next several weeks, we're going to be looking at Mary, and we're going to talk about Joseph, and we're going to look at the shepherds and see how each one of those people or groups of people submitted to the will of God in their life. What is God's will for you today? I pray that this Christmas season will not end without you absolutely being certain of his will for your life and obeying his will for your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to come together and study your word. Lord, I thank you for uh, the gift of your son, Jesus. I thank you for all those that were involved in, um, in this narrative, this nativity story. I just pray, Father, that now as, as we think about all that you asked of them, Lord, help us also to think about what you're asking of us. And Lord, I just pray, Father, that uh, whatever your will is for our lives, Lord, that you would uh, reveal that to us, and Lord, that we would be obedient to your will. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen.